All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios, like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else, from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. In a world where news of the human consequences of injustice, racism, xenophobia, guns, and greed are always only a click away, what is the morally appropriate posture for a person who is safe? Do we have a responsibility to stay informed, even if it makes us feel embittered and hopeless? It's Note to Self, the tech show about being human. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and that was Kim Brooks. Kim is a writer who got on my radar a couple months ago when I read this beautiful essay that she wrote for New York Magazine about creativity. I loved it so much that I actually looked her up and emailed her. I never do that. I never email people and gush. But I did, and she responded, and she said, you know what? I'm going to be in New York next week. Do you want to get coffee? She lives in Chicago. And I was like, yeah, let's go out for coffee. So we did, and we talked about stuff that was on our minds, stuff that was troubling us, stuff that we wanted to explore. So I asked Kim to think about writing something for Note to Self, and she did. The questions that Kim has been asking herself are ones that I know a lot of you are thinking about, too. It's about information overload, something that we talk about a lot here, and compassion, but particularly in these times of racial tension and an intense news cycle. We begin tonight with the growing outrage after a deadly police shooting, the images now seen by millions across this country. Yet another day, yet another African-American shot killed by police uh, appears to be completely innocent. Opening fire in downtown Dallas during a rally against the fatal police shootings of black men in Louisiana and in Minnesota. We have seen tragedies like this too many times. How can we remain informed and engaged citizens in an era of constant breaking news and waterfalls of shocking tweets without getting desensitized or numb or exhausted and feeling anxious and just plain isolated? Like there's nothing we can do. Well, Kim has sort of found an answer, at least for her. Here she is with her essay, written for you. She calls it The Problem of Caring. Once, it was several years ago now, I decided to turn my back on the world, not in an ascetic or monastic sort of way, but in a very deliberate way, one designed to protect myself. I was 28 at the time, married a few years, relatively aimless both geographically and professionally, 
wanting to find a way to support myself as a writer, but clueless about how to actually make this happen, when a few weeks into the year, I learned that I was pregnant. My hormones surged, my insides shrunk, the thought of everything made me nauseous. I grew despondent. Some might call this perinatal depression. I think spiritual cocooning sounds nicer. Day after day, winter to spring, I sat on our sofa with our two small dogs, watching the snowfall, balancing my laptop on my growing belly, nibbling my way through packages of saltine crackers, telling people I was writing, but not really writing at all. What I did instead was read, occasionally books, but usually just news of the world. Usually, then as now, that news was terrible. These were post-MySpace, pre-Facebook Twitter days, and it seems very odd to think about seeing the news delivered in an uncurated, mostly commentless way. There was still slant and spin, but the din of countless voices that accompanies our news now was largely absent. You picked your ideological flavor, and then you sat back and listened— and let it all pour over you. General Ban Ki-moon says the international community cannot continue to ignore the suffering in the Sudanese region of Darfur. The news has been dominated, of course, by one event, the mass shooting at an American university, the worst... I read as many details as the Times could supply. When Sudanese troops attacked refugees in Darfur, I looked at the pictures. When a mentally ill student slaughtered students on the campus of Virginia Tech, the school where my sister had been an undergraduate, I read the details and viewed the pictures. This was before the smartphone Instagram hashtag pipeline allowed for instant scene-of-the-carnage imagery, the pictures that arrive on our browsers blurred with a warning that clicking is going to reveal something grisly or worse. All there was was news. I look back on it now as my season of informed misery. According to my husband and to everyone else who knew me, I was nearly impossible to be around during this time, constantly angry, anxious, indignant, and morose. Interestingly, despite being highly informed, I didn't actually become a better person. I didn't try to help any of the people I read about. I didn't become a humanitarian or an environmental activist or even volunteer for any of Chicago's many worthy nonprofits. I knew there was so much more that I could be doing, not only in response to what I saw, but just as a way of not feeling like such a tremendous lump. There were leaves on the trees now, and the wind rustled them. The dogs wanted to go outside. There was a novel I realized I had to write. I stopped wallowing in the ceaseless stream of misery. I worked and I wrote and I became a mother. I was a content person on the north side of Chicago, inching into the periphery of success with children who did cute things and a desire, something I hadn't always had, to keep moving forward. If I moved my head a little too far in this direction, there were flames in the distance. And too far in the other direction, I could see untold millions weeping. But as long as I kept my gaze forward and ignored whatever flared up in the corners of my eyes, I could see a relatively happy world. I didn't want to look at it any other way.
This is one of the ugliest manifestations of my privilege that I can envision, the luxury of ignorance. The news, or the things that make the news, you might say, do not live outside my doorstep. I could choose not to look at them simply by virtue of who I am. And yet, it's also an unavoidable truth that I am a higher-functioning person because of this willful ignorance. Isn't there a humanitarian or philosophical or ethical mandate to not just know but be a part of your world? The truth is, I continue to look away regularly, and I know others who do the same. In a world where news of the human consequences of injustice, racism, xenophobia, guns, and greed are always only a click away, what is the morally appropriate posture for a person who is safe? Do we have a responsibility to stay informed, even if being informed makes us feel overwhelmed by the volume of bad news, even if it makes us feel embittered and hopeless? I didn't know the answer. Not long ago, for example, I emailed my editor some silly question about an upcoming obligation. Hey, Dan, I began my inane query. Happy Friday. Um, he wrote back, only happy if you're not reading the news. Are you under a rock? I wasn't, but I might as well have been. I was in the middle of one of my regular news fasts. For five days, I hadn't read a single report. And while I fasted, the rest of the country was reading about their fellow citizens shot and killed at traffic stops, arrested at peaceful protests, murdered by snipers. And while all this was going on, while most people were posting their expressions of outrage and sympathy, their thoughts and prayers, I was plowing through work, taking my kids to the pool, trying out a new recipe for green gazpacho. If I had been reading, I would have been waving my fists and cowering under a chair like everyone else, but I wasn't, and so I wasn't. Did this make me a worse person? Instead of spending three hours ingesting information online, I spent ten minutes reading the essential facts, and then I called a friend I hadn't talked to in a few months— a friend who never fails to be not just informed, but also insightful and compassionate and intellectually brave. How about them Yankees? How about them Yankees? I started the conversation. She laughed, but it was the kind of laugh that is pretty damn close to a sob, because in addition to being a friend and a teacher and an acclaimed poet, she's also an African-American and now worries every time her mom gets in the car that hers could be the next broken taillight that catches the attention of a twitchy police oh, officer. There were, there were two right on top of each other. Yeah, My name is Kiki Petrosino. I'm an associate professor of English at the University of Louisville in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm a woman of color. My mom is African-American. My dad is Italian-American. We also both had very interesting hair, I think. And we, <laughs> <laughs> we were drawn to each other, I think, for that reason as well. As Kim said, I have like some voluminous curly hair, so I probably present to people as a 
light-skinned black woman, I think, right? Completely apart from that is just a fear that I've always had of driving. I can drive, but it makes me nervous. And now with all the news, I know we definitely talked in our conversation about how it is not helping my driving anxiety to know that um, if I were pulled over, I don't really, I fear, like I fear, you know, I, I would, I, I have a fear now. I have a fear that, that I wouldn't know how to handle the situation or that uh, I could lose control of the situation maybe, or that family members who are driving could be pulled over or stopped at any time. Um, one fear I have is not being able to pull my phone out quick enough to like film whatever is happening. You know, it seems to take forever for these programs to boot up on the phone. And, and I now know that I must record, you know, I must find a way to record so you just go down these rabbit holes of fear, and that's not, that's really not good, you know. As we talked about what was happening to our country, I wondered if the sharing of stories and honest dialogue and saying the hard thing, not just on Facebook, but to actual human beings, is one of the few things that makes it possible to confront such awful news. We feel, on the one hand, we're brought really front and center because you can literally watch, at this point, video footage of someone dying, which is probably the most intimate moment, you know, of a life. But we don't know that person. We can't touch them. We can't talk to their family. It really throws into question what a community is and how to participate in community, given all of these um, technological advancements that we're making. I wondered if talking and listening can be an antidote to fear. It's so good to hear your voice, I said. We talked and debated and wrestled with this information about what's happening to people in our country, not just statistics and images and headlines, but actual people like us. Together, we struggled not just to know, but to understand. When we come back, Kim and Kiki talk about how we move the national conversation forward, online and off. Stay with us. We're back I'm Anoush Samarodi, and this is Note to Self. Our episode this week is about some of the horrors of news and how you balance being an informed person and information overload, specifically when it comes to issues about race. According to Pew Research, there is a significant difference in how black and white adults use social media to talk about race-related content. Okay, so about two-thirds of Black social media users, 68%, say that at least some of the posts they see are about race or race relations. Just one-third of whites agree. And there's a similar racial gap when it comes to posting, too, not just seeing stuff. So among Black social media users, 28% say most or some of what they post is about race or race relations. Just 8% of whites say the same. So... Back to our two friends, Kiki and Kim. 
Just a reminder, Kim Brooks is white. She's an essayist and a novelist. She'd been fasting from the internet on and off because all the bad news was making it tough for her to get through the day. But she started to realize that putting her head in the sand is a luxury. And so she called her friend Kiki Petrosino. Kiki is a professor at the University of Louisville, and she's a poet. She's biracial, and she saw the internet as a necessary way to immerse herself in what was happening all around her. So that week, there had been two deaths of young black men in America. Philando Castile had been killed uh, by a police officer in Minnesota, Minneapolis area, and then Alton Sterling had been killed. And I I was not on a news fast that week. Um, I had taken in all of the news. I had watched the videos on YouTube. Um, I had watched particularly the video of Castile that had gone out on uh, Facebook Live, which was a new platform in which you can just start taping yourself and it immediately posts to Facebook. Um, So, you know, Castile's fiance had had taped this event and had posted immediately as it was happening. So I ended up seeing it on YouTube after the fact. So I was sort of devouring all of the news and feeling definitely feeling overwhelmed by it. And Kim, when you called me, you didn't know about everything that had happened because you had been on your news fast, but you did know that things were bad. Things <laughs> so were bad. Yeah. We had, and I think, yeah, uh, yeah. And that's why I called you because I know that we, we've known each other for so long. And whenever I'm feeling sort of desolate about something, whether it's something personal in my own life or something in the world, um, I know that, you know, just talking to you about things and getting your take and hearing your perspective and your insights, you know, it's not that it fixes things, but I feel much less alone. I feel, you know, um, the consolation of friendship. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if we can say that it's necessary it's it's maybe not in the moment of the conversation it's like not like healing just happens automatically but there's a shared acknowledgement of of these overwhelming feelings or a shared acknowledgement that there is this darkness in the world and uh someone else is also seeing what i'm seeing that's what's validating about being able to talk about it yeah, I think I was I was just thinking that Kiki. It's yeah, it's having someone witness with you what mm-hmm. you're experiencing. Yeah, I mean, I've been struck by the vehemence and the energy with which people of color are coming forward now on various channels, whether it's mainstream media or social media or even interpersonally to sort of say to people, to others, to say into the American discourse, these things are happening But guess what? These things have been happening for a long time, but they've been invisible or we've been silenced in some way. And technology, particularly social media, has sort of given everyone a camera and therefore a microphone, too, to make a contribution to this larger conversation. And I think that we do need and that need is now quite urgent for more conversation across gender, across race, across social class. We need to be able to talk about our experiences of America, find out where we have common ground and where our experiences of this country may diverge. 
Yeah, I mean, I just agree a thousand percent. And, you know, you say that so eloquently, but I, I just found that to be the case, too, that I feel like there's more and more sort of of an echo effect going on, you know, like we befriend people and talk to people and our neighbors with people who kind of tend to think the same thing that we do, right, and have have mm -hmm. similar experiences. And, you know, which in a sort of shallow way can feel at times like reaffirming or reassuring or something. My parents live in kind of rural Virginia, and my dad is, you know, horrified and terrified by, like, the Trump campaign, and he's campaigning for Hillary. And I'm sort of like, Dad, you know, I, I don't, I mean, I don't say this anymore, but at a point I was like, nobody actually, like, supports this person. I mean, I look at my Facebook feed. It's like a thousand, everybody hates him, Every you know. And then I realize, like, no, I just, I don't know those people. I'm sort of in a bubble of people like me who think the way that I think and kind of becomes like an echo chamber. And I don't know, like, that doesn't seem good. You know, I, I think, right, right, haven't they studied it? <laughs> I'm trying to remember the psychological term, but like people who are surrounded by people who think the same thing that they do become more extreme in their beliefs. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, like it reinforces your ideas. Right. And, you know, I think like we have fewer and fewer venues or settings where people kind of casually, you know, go and have actual interactions, like real-time interactions with people who are maybe not exactly like them. Yeah, I think that that's right. And writing and reading can help promote empathy. I mean, they've even done studies where people who read fiction regularly are able to sort of access their feelings of empathy more readily, right? Because reading about a character's experience or reading a poem, watching a film even, just engaging with like, you know, human art, it reinforces for you that, you know, people are different and people can see things differently. And there's something to be gained by coming close to that and witnessing how someone else sees the world and communicating with them about how you see the world. It's it's not just, you know, an idealistic vision of how society could be. I actually think that it's a practical activity that can lead to good things, a lot of improvement that we need. This conclusion that Kiki and Kim came to, that real connection, real conversation, and art, film, fiction, poetry that all this holds the key to hopefully expanding our empathy? Maybe it's nothing new, but what a reminder of how important slow information can be to help us make sense of all the news and how it truly does affect and change people's lives. We started out the show with an essay that Kim wrote for you. We're going to end it with a poem from Kiki. So this poem that she wrote for you it recalls all the anxieties that she and Kim have been talking about, but specifically one anxiety, the moment she experiences when she gets behind the wheel of a car. She calls her poem, Letter Beginning, If My Body is a Text. Letter Beginning, 
if my body is a text. Then you must learn to read. My hands, double book of them, the threat you think my hands become when they unfold, hello. You find me in the cool of my car, slim universe of my colored self, slim chance of saying what I need to say to turn my hands into a book or turn me back into the child who memorized each rank of angels, thrones, dominions, virtues, thrones. You too must learn to read. There in the lagoon of every book, a body I pull up by the hand, another body I lift beside mine, my thoughts becoming body of light, body of light. You too must learn to read. How it feels for a colored child to lean and loaf, to take her ease in a thought. Like skimming across some blue wideness, the moon appearing in day sky. You'll say, I didn't know that was possible. Didn't know before the possible. You too must learn to read. At Monticello once, the 13th Amendment hung for three days, brown and spotted as a lion's muzzle, pale syllables of Lincoln's signature slowly fraying under glass. I wanted that warm page of skin, its words slanted alternatingly, as if the pen had wished to loaf against another body, endless field of work, America, endless animal face in the work. You too must learn to read. I woke up this morning with my mind stayed on freedom. That ain't no harm. I drove my car this morning with my mind stayed on freedom. That ain't no harm. I held my hands at ten and two. My mind stayed on freedom. That ain't no harm. I spun the warm wheel of my life so smooth this morning. No harm. I drove towards sunrise this morning. All morning my mind stayed on freedom. No harm. No harm. No harm. You too must learn to read. That was the powerful poem that Kiki Petrosino wrote for us. Head over to notetoselfradio.org for Kim Brooks' full essay. So we've been doing some experimental stuff here at Note to Self, and we love hearing what you think. Please let us know. You can email us at note to self at wnyc.org or tweet us or find us on Facebook. We love hearing whether things are interesting or useful or touch you or don't. We take our role in your life very seriously and we don't take it for granted. So thank you for listening. Many thanks to Rachel Neal, Megan Cunane, and Mithley Rao for their help this week. The Note to Self team is Joe Plord, Jenna Cagle, and Jen Poyant. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and this is Note to Self from WNYC Studios. But and have you eaten lunch? lunch? I totally yeah. ate lunch, yeah. <laughs>